The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, today we are going to, God willing, finish out the eighth chapter of Romans. And just for your information, this is our next to the last class. Next week will be our last class before we take a break for the summer. So bear that in mind. So we'll do something a little different next week because... I don't want to start chapter 9, which is a very involved and um, some would say controversial chapter because that's the chapter that deals in depth. We're going to touch on it now because Paul introduces it, of course, but it deals in in depth with that whole subject of predestination, election, all of that. And that's not the sort of thing you start and then take a break for two months and then come back and... um, you discover that only the elect actually actually return in the fall. So, (laughs) we'll finish out the eighth chapter today, and then we will come back uh, in the fall and start with Romans chapter 9. But next week we'll do something a little different. So if you have your Bibles open, turn to Romans 8, and we're going to start at verse 18. And I'm going to go ahead and read through the rest of the chapter, just so we have some context to what we're going to talk about. Because remember, when Paul was writing this, and I've, I pointed this out to you before, but I think it's important, um, the chapter divisions, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, etc., those were things that were put in centuries after the writing of this letter. They were put in during the Middle Ages by monks and, and scribes so that it would make it easier for us to follow the flow of the person's argument, whoever's writing, whether it's Paul or James or Peter, whoever it is, and also make it easier for us to memorize Romans 8.28, John 3.16, and so forth. But bear in mind that when Paul wrote this, he was writing a letter. And most of us um, don't write letters uh, with chapter divisions. In fact, if you get a letter like that, my advice to you is throw it away because you're gonna, it may not be worth your time and effort. But that's not the case here with Romans. So just bear in mind that Paul is having one argument flow from the other. One thought flows into the next. And that's one of the reasons why we're going to have to do a little bit of a review to sort of put things in context, in particular when it comes to the verses that we're looking at this afternoon. So, Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18, Paul writes these words, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've said before that Romans chapter 8 is the Everest of the epistle to the Romans, maybe even the Everest, the high point, the pinnacle of the New Testament. And this whole chapter is a chapter about encouragement. It's about assurance. It's intended to be understood as good news to the believer. If you want to sort of summarize the eighth chapter of Romans, you might do it in this way. This is a chapter in which for the believer there is no condemnation, no separation, and no defeat. Take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter begins this way, there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For believers, there's no condemnation. Verse 35, what then shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes on to explain that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So there's no condemnation, there's no separation, but then he also says there is no defeat. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love the fact that Paul doesn't simply say we're conquerors. We are more than conquerors. So if you're a Christian today, and this is the great encouragement to us, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you know him as your Lord and Savior, no matter what may happen in this life, and Paul acknowledges that terrible things do happen. He talks about the sufferings of this present time. Paul doesn't whitewash, he doesn't gloss over the fact that life can be terribly disappointing and hard. 
But he said, in the midst of all these things, if you're a believer, there is no condemnation. Doesn't matter if anybody condemns you. Doesn't matter if your own conscience condemns you. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is no separation, nothing, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, not even anything in all of creation, which includes you yourself, can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And finally, in the midst of life struggles, there is no defeat. Because we have the power of the risen Christ residing within us through the presence of the Holy Spirit so that we are more than conquerors. That's good news, folks. In the midst of this ever-changing world with all of its vagaries and fashions, it's wonderful to know that for believers there's no condemnation, no separation, no defeat. Now that is one of those things that sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? Almost sounds too good to be true. And so what we really want to know is, how can I be sure? How can I be sure that this is the case in my life, especially when I'm faced with all kinds of disappointments and distractions and difficulties? How can I be absolutely sure? Well, that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and following. Just a quick review of what we talked about last week. We said that... The promise is that God is working all things together for our good. Now, we had to ask the question, what is our good? And we said that our good is not good according to the standards of this world. Many people today would say that our good is to be healthy or successful or admired or happy or whatever it may be. And that's not what... God intends us to understand here. It, it, that's, that's not our good. Our ultimate good is to be made like Jesus Christ. Now, you think about it. It's, it's pretty powerful what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8. Paul is saying that God loves Jesus Christ. God the Father loves God the Son so much that what he's really all about is replicating millions of little Christs in the world. And that's what the word Christian means, you understand? The word Christian means little Christ. That's what God wants to do. He wants to replicate little Christ in the world because he loves his son so much. That is our ultimate good, to be made like unto Christ. And what Paul is saying is that God will use all things in order to do that. Um, two nights ago, I had a Q&A with the grandparent ministry, and there were a number of excellent questions that came up. But one of the answers that I gave was I said, sometimes we have to allow our children to fail. Now, that, that's not something that we are accustomed to doing in our culture, particularly young parents. They do everything in their power to help their children avoid disappointment or hardship. They, they want to put them in a bubble. They want to protect them from, from hurt. But the reality is, sooner or later, they're going to face hardship and hurt. First of all, you're not going to be here forever. And the second thing is this, and I think most of us, looking out at this particular gathering, I think most of us would probably agree that we learn more from our failures than we do from our victories. How many of you have ever found that to be true in your own life? I've certainly, some of those lessons have been exceedingly painful. But nevertheless, I found that I have learned more. I have been honed, shaped into the image of Christ more from some of my failures and from God's forgiveness than I have sometimes from my 
victories. Well, that's good news for us, too, because God is using even our failures for our good to transform us ever more into the likeness of his son, Jesus. We gave a great example of this last week. We said there's the example of Joseph from the scriptures. Uh, Joseph's life was a difficult life, to say the least. Sometimes we look back on these great heroes of the faith and we remember their triumphs, but it's helpful to remember what they had to go through in order to reach that point. And Joseph is a great example. I mean, he was falsely accused. He was hated by his brothers. You name it, it happened to Joseph. And yet God was using all of those things, not only for Joseph's good, but for the good of an entire nation. For the good of the nation that would be Israel. So we said we have to remember that our lives are a lot like a tapestry. We, we want to see what the tapestry looks like, and one day we will. We'll see what God is weaving. But in the meantime, you turn the tapestry over, and all you see are knots and tangles, and that's what our life looks like. But one day, God is going to take that tapestry, and he's going to turn it over, and all of our knots and tangles are going to be shown for what they really are, God weaving things together ultimately for our great good. So we should be encouraged. He said it's also like the back of a fine wristwatch. Wristwatch keeps perfect time. That Rolex, at least if you pay for a Rolex, it better keep perfect time. But you take the back off of the Rolex, and what do you see? Well, you see this complex mass of gears, things going up and down and round and spinning and backwards and forwards, and none of it seems to make any sense. But you turn the watch over, and you can see that it is doing exactly what it was intended to do, not missing a beat, keeping perfect time, and that is true in our lives as well. There is nothing, if you are a believer, Paul is telling you, that is coming into your life that has taken God by surprise. It doesn't mean that it's happy. It doesn't mean that it's good. It just means that it has not taken God by surprise. It's taken you by surprise. But it's not surprised him. And because you belong to him, he is using it ultimately for your good. Now, as I said, that sounds almost too good to be true. How do we know for certain that that is the case? Because let's be honest, Paul says we look through a glass dimly, and sometimes, you know, that's wonderful to keep in mind, but sometimes that's a hard thing to do when you're in the midst of the storm. Think about Peter on that occasion when um, the disciples were caught in the storm and uh, Jesus came walking on the water to them, and they were terrified. They thought that it was some sort of a phantom or a ghost. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. It's I. And, and Peter said, well, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water. You know, that's a trick question you can get with somebody. Who is the only person to have ever walked on the water? And, and people will say, oh, well, it was Jesus. Well, actually, Jesus was not the only one to walk on the water. Peter walked on the water. We're told that he was walking on the water toward Jesus until what? Until he saw the wind and the waves. Now, let's be honest. That's the way it is with us. It's the wind and the waves that distract us as they're beating against our boat, as they're tearing our sails. Those are the things that distract us and take our eyes off of Christ. And it is then that we begin to sink. Now, I always like to point out, Peter began to sink. He had at least this much wisdom. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately we're told Jesus took him by the hand and pulled him into the boat. 
So sometimes all we have is faith the size of a mustard seed. And it's not how much faith you have, it's where you place it. And Peter knew enough to place his faith in Christ. But the point is that it's the wind and the waves that distract us, isn't it? And cause us to forget, to take our eyes off of God who is working all things together for good. So how can we know for certain that God is actually working all these things for our good. How can we know for certain there is no condemnation, there is no separation, there is no defeat? Well, that's what Paul is talking about in verse 29. As I said, Paul is a great legal mind. He anticipates the objection. A good lawyer does that, you know. In a courtroom, if the other side is going to object, he anticipates the objection and he's ready for it. And Paul is ready for the objection. Paul says the answer to that question, how can I know for sure, are five undeniable affirmations. Five undeniable affirmations. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. The image of his son, that's the great good in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God is replicating Jesus in the world. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Some people have described this as the five golden links of salvation. What are those five golden links? Well, you have them right there. The first is foreknow. We'll take a look at each of them in turn. Foreknow, predestined conformed, called, justified, glorified. Really six, but we're going to combine them into five. But that is the means by which we can know for certain, we can know for certain that God is actually working all things together for good. Well, let's take a look at each of them. First of all, we know that God is working all things together for our good because... He foreknew us. He foreknew us. Now, what does that term mean, to foreknow? It's a combination of two things, two words, of course, in English. For and know. We often translate that as to know beforehand. And what many people think is, oh, well, what this means is that God looks down the corridor of time. I mean, God, after all, is omniscient. That's one of his incommunicable attributes. This is a way in which God is nothing like you and me. There are certain ways in which God is like us, but there are ways in which God is wholly other. And one of those is his omniscience. He knows all things. We don't know all things, do we? We, we know certain things because we're creatures of time, we know what is happening right now, what's passing us by. But God is omniscient, he sees all things. One way to try to understand how God views time as opposed to the way we view time is to think about a great parade. When I say a great parade, I'm talking about, you know, the, the Macy's Day Thanksgiving Parade. One of those great parades in New York City. Now, if you go there to see the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and you're standing on the street corner, how much of that parade can you actually see? Well, none. Well, you can, you probably can see some of it because some of those floats are enormous. But 
let's be honest, the only part of that parade that you can really see is what is right in front of you. Because of that wall of people, you cannot see what has passed by, nor can you see what is coming. You can only see what is right before you. Well, there is a sense in which that's the way it is for you and me. We are creatures of time. We are creatures of the moment. We can see what is happening right in front of us. But imagine the person who's on the 40th floor of one of those skyscrapers. How much of the parade can that person see? Well, they could see the whole sweep of the parade. They could see everything that's gone before. They could see everything that's coming, and they could see everything that's right before them. Well, I want to suggest that you and I are like that person down on street level. We, we can see what's happening right now because we're caught in this moment of time, but we can't see what's gone before, and we cannot see what's coming. But God is like that person on the top of the skyscraper who sees the whole sweep of history. You know, we think of time in terms of a line, linear, on a piece of paper. Well, God sees the whole piece of paper. So God is not a creature of time in the way that we are. And so many people say, well, that being the case, God can see beforehand, because he knows all things, the decisions that you and I are going to make. And on the basis of that foreknowledge, on the basis of what he knows we're already going to do, he acts to predestine us or elect us to salvation. Now, that is a very popular notion. And some of you are probably breathing a sigh of relief and saying, yeah, I like that. That sounds okay. I can, I can get on with that. Well, I want to disabuse you of that idea now. There are a number of problems with that particular interpretation. One problem is that that is not really what the thrust of this argument is all about. Paul is not saying that God saves us on the basis of what we do. On the basis of what he knows we're going to do or on the basis of what we have done. The whole point of Romans chapter 8 is that God saves us in spite of ourselves. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this, it fails to take into consideration our true spiritual state. And Paul spells that out for us, not here in Romans, but in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 where he says, but as for you, you were what? Dead in your trespasses and in your sins in which you once walked. But God who is rich in mercy did what? He made you alive even when you were dead. So that view that says, oh, God looks down the corridors of time and sees that some of us are going to embrace the gospel, and on the basis of what we do, he elects us, that fails to take into consideration our tragic spiritual condition. Now, here's the third reason why that interpretation is not correct, and it's simply because this is not the way the Bible uses the term foreknow. So you always, if you want to understand how a word is to be interpreted, how it's to be understood, what you have to do is you have to see how it's used elsewhere in Scripture. This is one of the great principles of hermeneutics. That's a technical term. It means interpretation. How do you interpret Scripture? Scripture interprets Scripture. All right? Scripture interprets Scripture. So we have to ask ourselves... How is that word foreknow used elsewhere in the Bible? And when we look at that, we see that it is always used in precisely the same way. 
Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is one of the most obvious examples. It's in the book of Amos. So keep your finger there in Romans and turn to the book of Amos in the Old Testament. It's toward the end. Amos. I'll give you a moment to get there. It's Amos chapter 3. Now God is talking to Israel. And here's what he says. Hear this. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known. Now, it's obvious what is being said there. We refer to the Jews as God's what? His chosen people. So when the text says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, it doesn't mean, oh, I looked down the corridors of time and I saw that you of all the peoples of the earth would ultimately embrace my message and therefore I chose you. God makes it very clear elsewhere in the scriptures that he chose Israel, not because of anything that Israel did or on the basis of anything that he knew Israel would do, given the opportunity. This whole doctrine of election, of God choosing certain individuals, choosing a nation in order to glorify himself, this is what the whole Old Testament is all about. God called this man Abraham. Why? Because Abraham was a particularly good person? Apparently not. We're told that he lived in paganism in a pagan land, in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. He didn't know anything about God. God revealed himself to Abraham because Abraham could never have discovered God on his own. God reveals himself. That's what Paul is talking about at the beginning of this epistle to the Romans. He said, for the wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness of men who, what, suppress the truth because God has made himself known in the things that have been made. The only way that you and I can ever come to know God, that you and I, finite creatures, can ever come to know the infinite is if God makes himself known to us. Otherwise, we'd be completely lost. So you go back now to Romans chapter 8. And it's important to understand that that term foreknow does not mean that he knew the decisions that we would make beforehand. A good way to translate this is to say those whom God took note of just like he did Abraham, just like he did Israel. He knew them. He took note of them. Now, you ask the question, why? And the answer is, we don't know. <laughs> I've said to you before, if you and I were God and we had to choose a people for our inheritance, we probably would not have chosen the Jews. We would have chosen somebody like the Egyptians, I mean, they were an extraordinary people. I mean, they built those magnificent pyramids and all those monuments. We still go today to Egypt in order to see these great monuments. Or perhaps we would have chosen the Greeks for all their intellectual prowess. Or perhaps we would have chosen the Romans because they were great at organizing things. But we would not have chosen the Jews, my goodness. I'll never forget 
what Benjamin Disraeli once said to Queen Victoria, not that I was there, but I've, I've read about it, and it's always stuck in my mind. Queen Victoria, after the death of Prince Albert, was really struggling. Uh, she was in deep mourning. As If you know anything about Queen Victoria, you know that she went into mourning and would not come out. She dressed in black for the rest of her life. And she lived a long life. He died in 1860. She didn't die until the dawn of the 20th century. And she mourned and mourned, and, and she struggled with a belief in God and what had happened to Albert and all of this. And at one point, she asked, you would have thought she asked the Archbishop of Canterbury, but she asked Benjamin Disraeli, the Prime Minister, was there any evidence for the existence of God? And Benjamin Disraeli was a Jew, and he replied, oh, yes, ma'am. There is. He said, it's the Jews. The Jews are the evidence, ma'am, for the existence of God. And then he went on to explain why. These were a people who were no people. They were small. They were insignificant. And you, you think about the Jews, he said, ma'am, they've always been at the center of history, and that is true. They've always been at the center of history. In the ancient world, they were at the center of history captives in Egypt, and they were led out of their captivity. They're at the center of history when Jesus is born. Jesus is born a Jew. The Apostle Paul, who next to Jesus, had more profound impact on the world than anybody else was a Jew. You think about the 20th century, the war in Europe. What was it all about? So much of it was all about the Jews. You think about what's going on in the world today. Where is everybody's attention always fixed, always fixed on Jerusalem? They are always the center of history. And why is that? It's because God took note of them. Not because they chose him, but because he chose them. I'm not sure she did, but that was his response. But that's what Paul is talking about here. That's, that's what the word foreknow means. It means that God took note of us. Why? Well... We don't know why, but we know this much. It's not because of anything that we did. Because we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. So God foreknows. Here's the second word, which flows from the first. God not only foreknows, he predestines. Now, somebody might say, well, that sounds like the same thing, to foreknow and to predestine. It, it, it's the same thing. It's really not. To foreknow means to basically set one's affection on another. Jesus took, or God took note of us. He, he set his affection upon us. But now having loved us, he goes on to do something for us. He predestines us. He predestines us. The Greek word for predestined is an interesting word. It's up there on the screen. Pru-orizo. And basically what it means is the horizon. It has the word horizon built into it. Now think about that for a minute. What is the horizon? The horizon is that dividing line, isn't it, between what we can see and what we cannot see. Anything within the horizon, we see. Anything beyond the horizon, what? Is beyond our sight. Well, basically what Paul is saying is God takes note of us as believers. He, he, for whatever reason, reasons that are secret to us, makes us alive even when we're dead, 
He sets his affection on us, and then having done that, he reaches down and takes us from one horizon to the other side. He predestines us. So it's, it's God's act. And those who he predestines, he takes into his realm, he then what? He then calls them. He calls them. Now, there are two ways to understand God's calling on our lives. Theologians refer to what is known as the external call. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then they talk about the internal call. What's the external call? That is the call that goes out to every man, woman, and child. All right. What did Jesus say? He said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. That is the external call. We see an example of this in Jesus' own life. He said, come unto me, what? All ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the external call. Or, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Come unto me, all ye. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. That, that's the external call. That's the preaching of the gospel. That's what we do every single Sunday here. That's what I'm doing right now. That's the external call. But we're well aware of the fact that because we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins, the only way that anybody is able to respond to that external call is if God does a special work of grace in their hearts, and that's what's referred to as the internal call. That's why Jesus says, yes, come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If anyone is thirsty, you may come to me. But then he also says, no one can come to me unless what? The Father draws him. That's the internal call. The invitation goes out to all, but only those who have been quickened. Only those who have the Holy Spirit already at work in them, what we call provenient grace, are capable of responding. Now, the illustration that I've used in the past, and I think it's still the best illustration, is the example of Lazarus. You all know that Lazarus died, and he'd been in the tomb for four days. When Jesus arrived in Bethany, we're told that there was a great company of mourners there. Mary and Martha were very influential women in those days. It's believed by some scholars that they were the ones who often bankrolled Jesus' ministry. I mean, he had to go around from place to place preaching and teaching and so forth. And, and do not think for a, for a moment Jesus was performing magic acts and just creating money out of nothing and sort of using that. For three years, he had to support himself. How was he doing that? Well, he had a number of people who supported his ministry, and it's believed that Mary and Martha, being wealthy women just on the outskirts of Jerusalem, were some of those who supported Jesus in his ministry. So they cared for Jesus, he cared for them. When, when he got to the house, we're told that there was a large company of people because these influential women had come out to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So there are lots of people there. And in first century Judaism, when you had a funeral, you had professional mourners. You know, for weddings, we have professional musicians to come in and play and so forth. In first century Judaism, they had professional mourners. You pay people to come out and mourn and weep and wail and make much ado. And so these people are there. You can just imagine. It, it was chaotic. No, this is a little different from us. It's hard for us to understand, but that's because we're Western people. 
Those of you who have been to the Holy Land, you know it's a different culture. Those of you who are going with me to the Holy Land who have never been there, you're going to discover it's a different culture. But what happens is these people are there, and, and no doubt they're crying out, Oh, Lazarus, come back, and Mary and Martha miss you, and you know, there's all this weeping and wailing, and Lazarus never comes out. That's the external call. Why doesn't he come out? Well, we all know why he doesn't come out. It's because he's dead, and he can't come out. But then Jesus comes. Jesus appears on the scene, and he does the same thing. He says, Lazarus, come out. I'd like to see you. And all of a sudden, the dead man came out. That's the internal call. See, we issue the invitation, but unless God is already at work, it doesn't matter what we say, God has to speak those words. God has to make them alive again. And so that's what happens here. God sets his affection on us before the foundations of the earth. He chooses us not because of anything that we've done. He sets his love and affection on us. Then he determines to move us from this horizon to beyond the horizon. And in order to make sure that that happens, he calls us. The invitation goes out to all, but God issues the call. And when that happens, we are quickened and we are made alive. And those whom he calls, he what? Justifies. Justifies. That is to say, he declares us righteous. I've talked about the word justification before. The best way to understand justified, take a look at your text in your Bible right now. Most of your texts, I suspect, are justified. If you do any kind of word processing and you type it in, you'll see that some lines on the right margin are shorter than other lines and longer than other lines. But if you blacken in that area with your cursor, go to the top and hit the justified button, what happens? All your margins line up. And that's exactly what you see on your page, a justified margin. That's what it means to be justified. It means to be lined up with God. We're not lined up with him, but now we are lined up with him. And why are we lined up with him? Because he took note of us. Those whom he took note of, he did what? He predestined. And those who he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. He lined them up. And as we're going to see in a moment, he also glorified them. Now, I want you to understand these five golden links of salvation are really sort of shorthand. They're shorthand. This is not an exhaustive description of all the stages that a person goes through in order to be saved. Um, for example, we sometimes speak of the doctrine of justification. It's one of the great doctrines of the Protestant Reformation, the doctrine of justification. You ever heard that? But, of course, Martin Luther, he was the great champion of this doctrine, and then Calvin and everyone else that came after him, the doctrine of justification. But actually, that's shorthand. It's really the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ. That, that's the real doctrine. We're justified. We come to be lined up with God by his grace 
his undeserved, unearned favor, which is received through the conduit of faith, trust, but faith and trust in who? Jesus Christ. That's the full doctrine, but the shorthand version of that is justification by faith. Well, what Paul is giving us here in these five golden links is the shorthand. But theologians refer to a longer, more involved process, the, the, the exhaustive description, and they refer to this as the ordo salutis, or the order of salvation. So I'm going to give that to you. These are the shorthand, but this is what God does ultimately in a person's life. And every person, every single person who is a believer in Jesus Christ really believes, not just gives lip service to it, but really believes in Christ and endeavors to follow him has experienced these things. First, that foreknowledge, God taking note of us. Second, the predestination. This is all part of what Paul is talking about here in Romans 8. The calling, but then something else. The regeneration. The regeneration. The new birth. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes Anglicans and Episcopalians get a little you know, antsy about that term, uh, born-again Christians. Oh, I don't, I don't know about those born-again Christians. Let me explain something to you. There is no other variety. I mean, it's Jesus who said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's not the Baptist minister down the road who says it. It's Jesus who says it. So we have to be made alive. But of course, that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. He said, but as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, did what? Made you alive. Lazarus was dead. Christ made him alive. And it was only after he made him alive that he was able to do what? Come forth. So God sets his affection on us. He predestines us. He calls us. And that calling makes us alive. And the result of being regenerate is that we are given the gift of faith. We often think it's the other way around. That if you have faith, you'll be born again. But what I want to suggest to you is that what the Bible actually teaches is that because we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins, we haven't the ability to exercise faith. So God makes us alive, and faith is the gift that he gives us to trust in him. So it's actually the new birth that precedes the faith, not the other way Around. That's why the New Testament describes faith as a gift. Listen, if you do it and get salvation as a consequence, it's not a gift. It's the gift of faith. And what results from faith? Repentance. That's why Paul in Ephesians also says, you were saved by grace through faith, not so that, so that no man may boast. But then he goes on to say, you were created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. It doesn't mean that our good works save us. Our good works don't save us. But it does mean that our good works flow from our salvation. That's why I say to people, good works, and when I say good works, it's not the kind of works that are pleasing to other men and women. It's the good works that are pleasing to God, the things that glorify him, that advance his kingdom, that, that bring attention to his son Jesus Christ, those are the good works that are pleasing to God. 
So repentance, a turning away from the old way of things and a turning to a new way of things. This used to be the way it was in the old baptismal rite. We don't do that in the world today or in the church today. But did you know that in the early church, when you were baptized, and generally it was the case that they baptized adults, not always. They did baptize infants as well, we believe. But when you took your baptismal vows, and we do this today, but, but they did it in a very symbolic way in the ancient church. What that we do today is we ask them to renounce a number of things, and then we ask them to embrace a number of things. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? I renounce them. Do you renounce all the sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. We go through all these renunciations, and then we say, now do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Savior? Will you follow him as your Lord? So there's renunciations, and then there are affirmations. In the early church, you know what they used to do? You'd be asked those questions. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? And you would literally turn toward the west. And that's west, by the way. You would literally turn toward the west and renounce, renounce, renounce. And then the minister would ask the question, and do you turn to Jesus Christ? The word turn is the word for repentance. It means to turn around, do a 180. And they would literally turn around and face the east. Symbolic of the fact that they were turning their back on that old way of life in which they once lived when they followed the ways of the world and they were now turning and embracing Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. Here's another definition of repentance. Repentance is not being sorry for the things that you have done. Now, that's what we think. Well, repentance is being sorry for what you've done. No, it's not. Repentance is being sorry enough to quit. All right? Sorry enough to quit. To turn your back on the old way to embrace the new way. So, here's the order of salutis so far. God takes note of us. He predestines us. He calls us. He makes us alive. He gives us the gift of faith. And because of that faith, we turn our backs on the old way. We turn to Jesus Christ. And as a consequence, we are lined up with him. And having been lined up with him, he adopts us into his family. He makes us sons and daughters of the Most High. We enter the church, you've heard me say before, Miss Sinner. We come out of the church, Mrs. Christian. And then having been adopted into his family, having been made sons and daughters of the Most High, God begins in us the process of sanctification. He begins to make us into the very thing that he has declared us to be. You know, when a commoner marries a prince, it doesn't matter what her background is. We all know this because of Meghan Markle. It doesn't matter what your background is. When you leave the chapel, or you leave the abbey, or you leave the church, you are a princess. Now, you have to begin to act like one. And so God begins a work in our life to transform us ever more into the very thing that he's declared us to be. And here's the other thing. He perseveres with us. He doesn't give up on us. 
He continues to work in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean we don't sometimes fall. It doesn't mean that we don't sometimes fail. It doesn't mean that we don't sometimes backslide. But what it does mean is that God does not give up on us. He continues to work in us to persevere unto the end until ultimately he glorifies us, transforming us on that other side of the horizon into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So that when God looks at us, what he sees is not our fallenness, our frailties, our imperfections. What he sees staring back at him is the image of his own son, Jesus. And that's what glorification is all about. I love the fact that Paul here in Romans chapter 8 speaks of glorification in the past tense. If you're a believer, God has foreknown you. If you're a believer, he has already predestined you. If you are a believer, he has already called you. If you are a believer, he has already justified you. But we all know that to be made like Christ is something that does not happen on this side, but on the other side. So why does Paul speak about that in the past term as though it's already happened? Because it is such a sure thing that Paul speaks of it as though it is a fait accompli. It is a done deal. And that's why he can say at the very next verse, if God is doing all of that, and you'll notice it's God who does all the work. It's God who foreknows. It's God who predestines. It's God who calls. It's God who justifies. It's God who glorifies. And if God is doing the work, that's why Paul can ask the next question. It's really a rhetorical question. If that's the case, what then shall we say to these things? To our struggles and our difficulties and our hardships and our disappointments. If God is for us, if God is at work in us, who? It's like Paul saying, who, who in all the world can possibly be against us? That is why we know God is working all things together for our good. Now, the question that everybody wants to know is, well, how do I know that I'm among the elect? Nobody can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if you are a believer, if you have received Christ as your Savior, if you have turned from the old ways and embraced the new ways and are endeavoring to follow him and to live no longer unto yourselves but unto him who died and rose for you, then you know you're elect. If God is producing in your life the fruit of the Spirit, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now you may look at your life and say, oh, I don't know. Ain't been much love this morning. Of course, you don't live with my husband, so you don't know. Um, you may be thinking, or joy, I'm not really joyful right now. Look, I'm not saying that we have these things in their fullness. There's only one person in all of history who ever possessed all of these things in their complete abundance, and that is Jesus. That's what God is doing. He's in the process of making us into the likeness of Christ. But what I am saying is that as you advance through the years, you should see your life transformed. You're seeing more of these things evident in your life, more love, compassion for those who are different from you or difficult, more joy. It doesn't mean that you're always happy. 
That doesn't mean you're always a Pollyanna. Happiness is dependent upon your circumstances. Joy is something that transcends it. Peace. You know, when difficulty comes, sometimes you just get anxious, verklempt, as my wife says. But what about peace? Do you have that, that peace, that still small voice when you realize God's not out there in the whirlwind? God is there in the still small voice telling you it's going to be all right. Love, joy, peace, patience. Patience, well, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Look, you may not see as much fruit as you would like, but the question is, do you see the fruit of the Spirit? And if the fruit is there, let me tell you something. God will prune you. That's what he says in John's gospel. John says, God will prune you. Those of you who are gardeners, you know sometimes you have to do pruning in order. There's a time to cut back flowers and so forth so that in the spring they might blossom. God will prune you. Sometimes that pruning is painful. But it's God working all things together. What? For your ultimate good, that you might bloom, that you might produce and be fruitful people. That's how we know that what? Nothing. Nothing. If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? If God has done all of this, how, how can we ever doubt it? You know, Martin Luther wrote that hymn, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. I love the way Paul says that. If God is doing all of this, who can possibly be against us? The image that he conjures up in my mind is the image of one of those old-fashioned scales. It's as if Paul is laying down a challenge. He says, think of all the things that are against you. Think of all the things that seem to be arrayed against you, that fill your heart with dread and fear and worry. Think about all of them and pile them up on one side of the scale. And Paul says it's like piling up peanuts. Pile them all up. Pile them up high. And what's happened when you put all of those peanuts on one side of the scale? Well, it goes down. But then he says, on the other side, put God. And God's like an anvil. You put God on the other side, the anvil, and what happens to all those peanuts? They are scattered. God comes down, and everything else goes up and is scattered. God is for you. Who can possibly be against you? And the obvious answer is no one. He goes on to ask a series of questions, then he says, and if God has already done all of this for us, if he's already given us his very own son for our inheritance, if he's already given his very own son to die for us, to suffer the curse of the damned for us, to rise again for us, do you think he's not going to give you everything else that you need? That's like a guy that gives you a million dollars. Here, it's just a million dollars. I just want you to have this. It's a blessing to you. He takes you out to lunch, and you get to the parking meter, and you discover you don't have a quarter to put in the parking meter. If, if you say to that man who's just given you a, a million, uh, 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 will you give me a quarter, do you think having given you a million is going to deny you a quarter? That is what Paul is saying. If God has already given you the best that he has, 
Isn't he going to give you everything else that you need? What else do we need? Well, we need strength in time of trial and temptation, don't we? Well, if God's already given you his son, you don't think he's going to give you the strength that you need in those difficulties? If God has already given you your, his own son, do you not think he's going to give you a friend in those times of loneliness? If God has already given you his son, will he not give you direction in the midst of confusion when you don't know which path to take or which decision to make? If God has already given you his son, will he not give you comfort in times of loss? Will he not give you courage in the face of death? God is going to give you everything that you need, and he's already proven that because he's already given you the very best that he has, his son. And he says, not only will he give you everything that you need, he will also be an aid in times of accusation. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? You know, that's what the devil does. The devil is a great tempter, and he is a great accuser. Oh, yes, I know God says he's forgiving, but you just think about what you did. You think about that person and how you wronged them and how you hurt them. And they're no longer here. They're gone. They're dead. You can't make it up to them. And so our conscience afflicts us. And when our conscience afflicts us, what? We find ourselves in a tizzy. We can't do anything. We're incapable of acting, making a difference. We're just riddled with guilt. But he said, who can bring any charge against the ones God has chosen? You're God's elect. If God is your lawyer, if God is your advocate, and that's what he goes on to say, who can possibly bring a charge against you? Who is he that condemns? It is Jesus Christ who justifies. The word that is translated in the New Testament as Holy Spirit, one of the words or descriptions of the Holy Spirit is the word parakletos or paraclete. It means one who comes alongside to assist it's sometimes translated in our English versions as our advocate. The Latin is advocatus, but they mean the same thing. It means someone who stands in court and speaks on your behalf to the judge. So you've got the other side that's bringing all of these charges against you. You're standing in the courtroom. God Almighty is the judge who to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. And the devil is over there, and he's accusing us, and he's bringing all these charges, and they're piling up and piling up and piling up, and we are feeling condemned. We're feeling as though there's no way out. We're going to be condemned. And then it's time for our advocate to speak, and the one who steps forward and speaks on our behalf is the Son of God himself. And he says, I have already paid the price. I've already paid the price. My death was a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, satisfaction for his or her sins and for the sins of the whole world. And the judge says, that's right. And the question is, who then shall condemn us? And the father of the judge says, you are free. And because we are free, we also know that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ who has paid it all that we might be different. Now that being the case, 
how should we as Christians live? We should live with confidence. We should live with courage. We should live with boldness. And when I say courage, boldness, I mean we should not be afraid to speak out on behalf of the one who has done all of this for us. If you're a believer today, I want you to know nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can defeat you. Nothing can condemn you. Because if you're a believer today, it is because God took note of you. Oh, even before you were a twinkle in your mother's eye. He took note of you before the foundations of the earth. And having foreknown you, he predestined you. And having predestined you, he called you. And having called you, he justified you. And having justified you, hallelujah, one day he will glorify you and turn you into the image of his son, Jesus. And he will welcome you into his eternal kingdom. That is good news. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this eighth chapter of Romans. For those who are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation, no separation, no defeat. Fill us with a sense of gratitude for all your many blessings. And grant that we may go forward and begin to live no longer for ourselves, to turn our backs on the old ways and to embrace Jesus Christ and to live for him. For we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.